I'll ask you to turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 8, and we will read verse 22 up to verse 26. Mark 8, 22 to 26, but we are going to cover from Mark 8, 22 to the end of chapter 10. I know most of you prefer a, uh, a microscope view of the text. Sorry, this is a panoramic view so that you have homework. And you will see why I do a panoramic view as, as we get into the text. Mark chapter 8, I'll read verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now, someone in our small group observed that Mark loves the word immediately. Here, however, things do not happen immediately, do they? Jesus has to lay hands on the blind man twice. And he does this on purpose as an acted parable that demonstrates his disciples' need to learn the cruciform values of the kingdom. And we are tackling verse eight, chapter 8, verse 22, all the way to chapter 9, verse 52, because this entire account, or this entire section, is bracketed by the healings of two blind men. And this entire section describes how Jesus is going from Galilee to Jerusalem, and it is a journey that is framed by Jesus' three predictions of his death and resurrection. And the reason why that, why we take those, why that journey is framed by the passion predictions is that Mark wants to emphasize that Jesus is deliberately heading to his crucifixion. And since one of Mark's concerns is discipleship, he shows the responses of the disciples to each and every prediction. And unfortunately, they respond in very disappointing and self-centered ways. Because Mark's intent isn't simply to show Jesus as the suffering servant. He's also showing us how sin has blinded us and perverted our understanding of reality. And therefore, he is letting us know that following Jesus is to follow him on the way to the cross. So let's dive in. Jesus' first passion prediction comes at the turning point of Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 8, verse um, 27 to 30 is the turning point of Mark's gospel 
where Peter and his fellow disciples rightly acknowledged Jesus to be the Messiah. We find that in verse uh, 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. This is the confession that is the only rightful conclusion after everything that Jesus has said and done from chapter 1 all the way to this point. If you have heard Mark, then you will come to the conclusion that Jesus is indeed the anointed one of God. What Mark also wants us to understand in light of the parable, uh, in light of the acted parable of the blind man, that the only way for his disciples to recognize that Jesus is the anointed one of God is if Jesus had given them the ability to recognize him as such, in the same way that Jesus had given the blind man sight. But in the same way that the blind man had blurred vision after Jesus' first touch, think of the blind man after the first touch as me without my glasses. It's like, oh, golly. <laughs> I don't see clearly. The disciples' understanding of Jesus was still very fuzzy. And that is why you will note in verse 30, having recognized that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone. In fact, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Because in the minds of the Jews, the Messiah would be a military Messiah, one who would kick the Romans out and make Israel great again. He was indeed the Christ. But he was the Christ who would also be the suffering servant of the Lord. So he says in verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. See, Mark wants us to recognize that the only way to know Jesus rightly is through the cross. The disciples are not at this point able to understand that Jesus causes the kingdom of God to come in power not by force of, force of arms, but through the outstretched arms on the cross, through his death and resurrection. So in chapter 9, verse 1, when Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power, he is very likely speaking of his death and resurrection. But the disciples don't understand. And so Peter response by rebuking Jesus. But in trying to turn Jesus from his mission, from his cross, Peter is acting like Satan. And so Jesus rebukes him in verse 33. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And we can relate to Peter, can't we? We often treat Jesus as the means to our self-centered ends. And so we say God is faithful because he has answered our prayers. So let me ask you this. Would we still say he is faithful when he has not answered our prayers? Has God changed? You see, at the very foundation of this text, 
is the demand of Jesus that we deny our very selves. That to follow Jesus means we must give up our self-centered desire to control our lives in order to embrace his plans and his desires for us. Look at verse 34. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, unfortunately, we have sanitized and trivialized the cross. When, when, we were, when I was looking for um, an offering, a new offering box to replace the box that, we lost, that was stolen, um, there was an, a $100 upcharge for a cross on the box. <laughs> yeah, wow. In fact, some of them were costing $1,000, and I thought, does this multiply the money <laughs> as you put it in? <laughs> That's how trivialized the cross has become. But in Jesus' day, to take up the cross was a shocking metaphor. See, a person who took up the cross was now under the absolute authority of Rome. A person who took the cross was a dead man walking. Then as now, rightly understood the cross offends our sensibilities. In our day, it is an offense because we place ultimate value on being free to do what we want. I like the way Adam Noble point, put, puts it. The reason autonomy feels safe is that we think we can trust ourselves to look out for our own well-being. Whereas others will always look out for their own well-being over and against ours to some extent or another. See, it speaks to the fact that sin has so distorted our understanding of reality, we actually don't know what's good for us. Alan Noble goes on. If we were honest with ourselves... We'd have to admit that on average, we aren't much better than anyone else at desiring what is truly good for us. We regularly desire and pursue self-destructive experiences and goals. I know what I need to do to care for my body. That's true, right? And yet I regularly do the things that will harm me and fail to do the things that will benefit me. How many of you who take cholesterol pills took the brisket that I served on Sunday at the Q&A? <laughs> I'm guilty too. <laughs> you know, it is not a coincidence that self-destructive behaviors are almost always simultaneously attempts to self-medicate and cope with modern life. We need to belong to someone who is perfectly able to desire our own good while desiring their own good. Someone for whom there cannot be a conflict between our good and their good. In short, we need to belong to Christ. And that's the good news of this text. You see, verse 35, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Submission to God is offensive to us because we doubt the goodness of God. But the cross of Christ shows us that God is lovingly, sacrificially committed to our welfare, to our greatest good. 
And Jesus calls us to follow him so that he might give us more than all his benefits. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he wants to give us himself in loving relationship. And it is only in loving, obedient relationship with him that we find true life and experience genuine freedom, not just in the present, but for eternity. That's why Jesus goes on in verse um, 36 to verse 38. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? He pushes us beyond the present to his coming in glory. And six days after his declaration that the Son of Man must suffer, Jesus reveals his splendor and glory to Peter, James, and John in chapter 9, verse 2. He is transfigured before them. Let's read that text. Verse 3, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Imagine Jesus shining like the sun. And Elijah Moses, and Moses talk with him. And their presence demonstrates that Jesus is the culmination of God's self-revelation and the fulfillment of everything that God had promised to his people. And then you have that declaration of God the Father. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In saying, this is my beloved son, God conclusively confirms Jesus' identity as the son and the anointed king. But in saying, this is my beloved son, he is also affirming Jesus' stated purpose of dying as the suffering servant who would rise again. And so he says, listen to him. Take his passion prediction seriously. And the transfiguration of Jesus also anticipates his resurrection. That's why he tells them, don't tell anybody until after my resurrection. Now, you will notice that Mark only spends eight verses on the resurrection. In part, it is because the transfiguration already anticipates the resurrection. So if you are using the ESV or the 2011 NIV, in Mark 16, you will notice that it says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 to 20. Please understand that it's not heresy, that is a factual statement, which indicates that it is very likely that 16, 9 to 20 was not part of what the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to write. Someone probably did not like the way Mark ended the book. I mean, I don't like the way the book ends. And so that person wrote a better ending. And since we're committed to studying the Word of God and not some guy's idea of how Mark should have ended, I will only be preaching on Mark 16, 1 to 8, on Easter Sunday. So that's one text in Mark that I will preach that's short. 
So, to go back to the story, Peter, James, and John are puzzled when Jesus tells them to keep his transfiguration a secret until he has risen from the dead. Now, remember, they had seen Jesus raise the dead. But in their minds, they just can't conceive of Jesus rising again. And it speaks to the fact that they still need Jesus to heal their vision. And so they come down from the mountain, and they find the other disciples arguing with um, some Jews because they could not cure a demon-possessed boy. They had cast demons out before. Chapter 6, Jesus sent them out to cast out demons. And so they assumed they could do it on their own. Why, can't, why doesn't it work now? And so Jesus, in verse 19, chapter 9, verse 19, rebukes them for their faithlessness. And then he casts out the demon. And in casting out the demon, he shows through the boy's father that the issue isn't the object of your, is, that the issue is the object of your faith. It's not about how much faith you have. It's whom you trust. That's why there's that interchange between Jesus and the Father. If you believe, if you can, uh, verse 23, if you can, all things are possible to one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And in casting out the demon, he demonstrates his power he demonstrates his worthiness of their trust. Now, because Jesus is interested in training his disciples in the upside-down values of the kingdom, this becomes a teachable moment. And he wants them to understand that in the kingdom, dependence is strength. And so he tells his disciples, verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In other words, it's not about you. It's about God and his power. He wants them to understand that apart from God's enabling, we are totally inadequate. Because in the first place, God created us to flourish by relying and depending on him absolutely. That's what life was about in the Garden of Eden. But Adam and Eve decided to trust themselves and Satan. And we're in the mess we are in right now. And so God has brought us into his kingdom in order to wean us away from our prideful autonomy and restore us to his original intent. To live as people who are absolutely dependent upon him. And so they continue to journey. And in chapter 9, verse 31, as they pass through Galilee on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus makes his second passion prediction. Chapter 9, verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And once again, we are told, verse 32, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. It's not just that they were afraid to ask him. His disciples could not understand because they were more focused on gaining power and prestige. Look at verse 34, chapter 9, verse 34. Mark tells us on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Can you imagine? Jesus says, I'm going to die. 
And they're arguing about, so who's better? It's like kids arguing about who gets a biggest, the bigger share about, of the inheritance at their father's deathbed. And that's why Jesus tells them in verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You see, in God's cruciform kingdom, greatness means self-giving service. And Jesus challenges their values even further by taking a child and telling them to value and serve those who are insignificant in the eyes of the world. Verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In those days, children were loved, but they were not considered significant until they reached puberty. Those were days when children died young, very often. And so you did not make your plans around them until they reached puberty, until they survived, and you could tell that they would survive. See, every believer matters to Jesus, and that's the good news for you and me, because most of us are insignificant people. But Jesus values every child of his. So he says in verse 42, if we cause any of his little ones to lose their faith, we are better off dead. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now sin there speaks of apostasy or leaving the faith, okay? Jesus values his children, and so we need to care for one another. Unfortunately, the disciples still don't understand. You notice in chapter 10, jump down to chapter, to chapter 10, Verse 13, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. And so Jesus indignantly tells them, verse 14 and 15, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. See, Jesus demands that we come submitting to him as those who have nothing to offer because he is the one we desperately need. Jesus came precisely because only his sacrifice could make us right with God. And in light of that, we must value him more than we value our health or safety. That's why he says in chapter 9, verse 43 to 48, that we must be willing to give up an arm or an eye in order to be faithful to Jesus. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, 
for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now Jesus talks about salt and fire because he is using language that evokes sacrifice. It's about the cost of faithfulness to Christ in light of who he is. As James Edwards would put it, discipleship to Jesus lays a total claim on one's life. In the language of sacrifice, it must be totally consuming or it is worthless. And salt and fire were essential elements of a sacrifice. The point that, Jesus, that Mark makes is that following Jesus demands our all and extends to every relationship we have. And that's why in chapter 10, verse 1 to 12, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus corrects the Pharisees' understanding of marriage and divorce. The Pharisees were seeking for loopholes in order to justify divorce. Jesus points out the original intent of God for marriage. Making, because he wants us to understand that discipleship means honoring God by living for his purposes in every area of life. Even our marriage, even our work life, even the relationships and friendships that we have fall under the category of discipleship. Sadly, the rich young man did not understand what it means to follow Jesus. He comes to Jesus confident of his righteousness, but he comes to Jesus because he rightly sensed that it probably wasn't enough. He could sense a need, and that's why he comes to Jesus. And Jesus loves him. In love, Jesus exposes his idolatry. Look at verse 21. Jesus says to him, one, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus wasn't asking for an arm or a leg or an eye. He was telling this man, in the words of Augustine, to love God even to the contempt of self. It really came down to this. Who do you love more? The kingdom or your wealth? God's kingdom or your kingdom? And we are told that disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He could not give up his wealth to follow Jesus. And so Jesus declared that it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's the point of that statement that he makes um, when he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There is no eye gate. There is no rope threading the needle. Jesus is making a self-evidently impossible statement for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. 
to say it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So does that mean that poor people are good to go? Well, no. <laughs> See, in that context, wealth was considered a sign of God's favor. And so as far as the disciples were concerned, wait a minute, Jesus, if the people who enjoyed God's blessing could not enter the kingdom, well, <laughs> What is that? Where does that leave me? Because I'm not enjoying God's material blessings. What hope would ordinary people have to enter the kingdom? And that's why Jesus follows on and says, verse 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. See, the bad news is None of us are fit. Good news is, salvation is the work of God. That's why Jesus came. And so he predicts his suffering a third time while they are on the road going up to Jerusalem. Verse 32. It says in verse 33, chapter 10, verse 33, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, you've heard this three times, right? And at each time, Jesus either repeats or fills in the details. Here, it's the full Monty. This is what's going to happen, boys. But sadly, the disciples still don't get it. In fact, look at verse 37. James and John even have the gall to demand, oh, Jesus, we want you to give us whatever we want. It sounds like Daniel, you know, my, my Daniel. <sighs> Tells you, promise you'll tell me, you, just do what I say. That's basically what they're saying. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus, we want to be the prime minister and the chief of staff. Top positions in Jesus' administration. And the other disciples are furious, verse 41. But it's not because they thought the brother's request was wrong and tacky. How can you ask at such a time? The reason they were angry was that the brothers beat them to the punch. Those are my positions. Why are you asking for my spot? And so Jesus cast to correct their distorted values yet again. Look at verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Up to this point, the pride, selfishness, and self-centeredness of the disciples was still blinding them to the glory of Jesus. They were not fit for the kingdom. And for that matter, none of us are. 
But that's precisely why Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Because none of us are good enough and never will be. And so Peter Bolt comments, Jesus died for the many. He drank the cup for others. He was baptized on behalf of others. The vicarious nature of his death means that James and John, along with the many, drank the cup that he drank and were baptized with the baptism with which he was baptized. To use Paul's language in Romans 6, they will die and rise with Christ because his death will be in their place and on their behalf. You see, that's our hope. Jesus gave himself for us so that we might enter the kingdom because there was no other way for us to enter the kingdom. And Mark closes this section with the healing of the blind man Bartimaeus to show us how we should respond to Jesus. Just like Bartimaeus, we need to come to Jesus in faith, recognizing our need, seeking his mercy, acknowledging him as our rightful Lord, valuing him above everything else. And please understand, this kind of faith is impossible. This kind of faith is a gift from God. In the words of Paul, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you and I are here, able to say, yes, I have put my faith in Jesus Christ, it's not because you're smarter, wiser, more sensitive. It's not because the pastor who preached the gospel to you was awesome. Maybe he was awesome, but he can't get that far. It is because God has shown you and me grace. And as we submit to Jesus in faith, we learn that the only thing that is worth sacrificing everything for is the kingdom of heaven. That kingdom is not a place or an earthly political reality. No, it is the rule of the King of Kings. He comes not only to rule our hearts, but to rule over everything for our good and His glory. In His rule, it's the grace of forgiveness, the patient love of personal transformation, and the sovereign guarantee of life to come that is free of all the sin and suffering that so mars the here and now. His rule is the place where I am freed from my bondage to the created thing and swept up into the transcendent and glorious. This king alone is able to satisfy the cravings of my heart and grant me joy that the disappointing circumstances of my life cannot take away. It really is true. The kingdom of heaven is the only thing worth giving up everything for. Those of us who have put our faith in Christ can attest to this. And if you're here and you still have not bowed the knee to Jesus, we ask you to consider the claims of Christ carefully.
He demands your all. He deserves your all because he has given his all. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. For you see us, you see our hearts. You see our selfishness, you see our desire to rule our lives. You see our desire to rule the lives of other people. And we, we do that in subtle ways. Father, forgive us for the way we seek to make others serve us instead of seeking to serve others. Forgive us for too often we use Jesus as a means to our ends instead of submitting to him and recognizing him to be the rightful Lord of our lives. But we thank you. We thank you that despite you knowing our sinfulness, you still chose to love us and send your son so that he might be the propitiation for our sins so that we might be restored to you. And thank you that you have opened our eyes, give us new, given us new birth so that we may see the glory of Christ and put our faith in him. And we thank you that you are even now at work in our lives, exposing our sin, our selfishness, our pride, and giving us the grace to repent, driving us back to the cross of Christ so that we may receive from him the forgiveness we desperately need. And so, Father, we pray, drive us back to Christ as you show us our sin. And I pray for those who are here who do not know you, who still resist your grace, who are determined to live their lives regardless of the cost for themselves. We pray that you would open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus, that they would put their faith in him, that they would see that he is worthy of their lives, worthy of their trust, for he is the only savior the rightful King and God, so that we may all join hands at that great day when Christ returns and declare that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Sing a song of response that celebrates the fact that we are not our own but belong to Christ. <laughs>